0: This episode of Misery Point Radio is brought to you by Steve Joyner and the SJ Network. So you got yourself a super badass project or an epic entertainment profile that you need to share with the universe? What you need is some next level promotion and representation. When you're ready to get the publicity and exposure you deserve, and I'm not talking about indecent exposure or dangerous solar rays, I'm talking about, holy crap, I need to book this person now kind of exposure, then you need to call the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Joyner and get yourself on the right path. Whether you're just starting out, a seasoned pro or looking to take things in a new direction, Steve can help you out. So reach out and touch him over the phone, you pervs, at eight one six six zero five four five six one or via email at Steve SJ Network at gmail dot com. You can also check out wwws dash network dot com. Do yourself a favor and give him a call. Now on with the show.
1: Hey, this is Richard Bergen, the director of FANG, and you're listening to Misery Point Radio.
0: Welcome back, Rat Kings. Thanks for joining me again on Misery Point Radio. Appreciate you taking the long journey down the dark corridor of your own mind to join me in the downward mental spiral that is this show. And because we are all a part of the same club of psychologically tormented creative geniuses, I've got an extra special treat in store for you today. One that will no doubt leave you in anticipation and suspense of the things to come in the next month or so. Because at the end of the day, that's really what my ultimate goal is, right? To inflict just enough mental torture to drive you to the brink before giving you that ultimate payoff. Sadistic I know, but you're welcome. Today's guest is filmmaker Richard Bergen, writer, director, and executive producer of the upcoming psychological horror movie aptly titled Fang, a twisted story of a young janitor who believes he is transforming into a giant rat after being bitten. From there, things devolve to the point of madness, and the true story of the film unfolds. Richard was kind enough to travel with me down the rabbit hole that is his mind and he shared the process of developing the story, setting out to share it with the world, and ultimately getting it made. Along the way he describes how he explored the complex themes of mental illness, derangement, and his own perception of horror. Going even farther down the rabbit hole we talked about some of the ways the film parallels his own life and what elements of himself he injected into the characters. I had an absolute blast talking with Richard about the process of making this film. He has some really cool stories about some of the crazy things that happened along the way as well as how he came to learn some valuable lessons about the process and about himself. Make no mistake, this is a truly personal project for Richard, and I'm really excited to see this film when it's released, hopefully sometime in November. I definitely see big things happening for this talented young filmmaker. So, grab your industrial-sized can of Tomcat, shut yourself off from the outside world, and prepare for a journey through the mind of Richard Bergen. Hey Richard, welcome to the show, thanks for joining me today.
1: Well, uh, thank you for having me on your show, Mike.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know you're a busy dude. You're doing tons of interviews right now, which is fantastic. I do want to give a quick shout out to our mutual friend, Mr. Steve Joyner from the SJ Network for number one, introducing me to your uh, super amazing project that I'm very excited to talk to you about, but also just for being an all around cool dude who really kind of helps out people in the artistic community. So uh, so thanks, Steve. Uh, you are uh, An officer and a gentleman. (laughs) So, uh, um, yeah, really cool. I'm excited to talk to you about Fang. So let's kind of chat about that. So you wrote, directed, produced, kind of wore a whole bunch of different hats, took on many roles. Am I correct in that?
1: You are correct, yes. Well, technically, I was the executive producer, so I don't want to take credit for being like the regular producer because that – that is one job that I don't see myself doing because it's a tremendous amount of work to kind of keep the production going. And I give my producer, Robert Felker, a lot of credit for keeping us from going off the rails <laughs> <laughs> but times when, when it looked like we were on a train that was heading for collision.
0: All right on. Awesome. Well, props to you there, Richard. So... So you got this project going, but really, at the end of the day, this is kind of a a, a pet passion project that you've had kind of uh, brewing in your mind for a long time, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I, uh, I started writing the script for Fang in March of 2019, and now we've you know we're about one month away from you know finishing the movie and having an online premiere for it. So it's been about. So it's been over a year and a half, which is actually fairly fast. That's
0: pretty quick, yeah. Yeah. So now, if I understand this correctly, this is really uh, your first major release that you've worked on, right?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: uh... So how does does somebody who's kind of a first-time filmmaker... Get the backing and everything together to really make a project of this magnitude go. I mean, this is something that a lot of people dream about. And here you are, everyday Joe, you know, and all of a sudden you're saying, I've got a movie I'm making. And you know, we all hear it, right? I'm writing a novel. I'm writing a screenplay. I'm writing a movie. I'm writing an album. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And you're like, well, fuck you. I'm actually doing it.
1: Bye, everybody i just saying that until, like, like, my mom was, you know, when I was in the early stages, when I told her I was going to make this movie, she was like, oh, okay.
0: Okay, sweet dear, you have fun with your little movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and one night she would be talking on the phone, like, when I had to take, like, an important phone call about Fang, and then that, that's when she realized I was really taking this seriously, and yeah. I was it, but the way I, I got started. Honestly, it's been such a kind of twisted process with so many twists and and turns to get to where I am now that I don't have an easy answer for how I managed to actually do it. I will say that one thing I would say to anybody who who wants to make a movie is uh, try to make it on as low a budget as possible because the less money it costs to make, the more likely it is to get Made If you write something that would require, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars to make, you know, and, and you've never directed a feature film before, it's very unlikely that you'll get financing for it. But I was able to do it cheaply enough that I didn't have to get outside financing to make Fang, so that made things a lot easier. So you're self-funding this? Well, it was from my family's uh
0: money like for my dad. Right, but it's internal. I mean, you're not, you weren't going and and borrowing money and setting up, you know, funds and business plans and all this kind of crazy stuff to kind of make this happen.
1: That's uh, I'm gonna have to tackle that demon on my next movie. <laughs> I'm
0: afraid. <laughs> yeah, you know, you you brought up a good point, though. At least as far as uh, you know, spec scripts and things like that. You know, when somebody gets their hands on this stuff and they look at this, and the first thing they see is how much money am I going to have to put into special effects or location stuff, or you know, any number of factors, and they watch those dollar signs kind of start racking up. Where from everything I've seen about fang this is really a very character driven movie that kind of focuses on you know dialogue internal and external and really not focusing on say crazy stuff happening that requires insane amounts of technology
1: oh absolutely well there is some crazy stuff that happens but it didn't require too much technology to pull off because the the insanity of fang is very kind of rooted in the relationships between the characters and the conditions that they live in and how their lives kind of spiral out of control
0: sure yeah well let's let's kind of dig into this then so Uh, if I'm on the right track, the basic elevator pitch, uh, young janitor by the name of Billy gets bitten by a rat, you know, at some point after that, he kind of starts to believe that he is himself becoming a rat. And then I assume that that's really kind of where the movie takes its core theme from, which is exploring the nature of reality, right? What's it really about? And are we as viewers kind of forced to make a decision? Is this actually happening to him? Or is this kind of happening in his head?
1: No, yeah, that's that's what the movie is about. And I definitely, I do want to leave it ambiguous for now, whether he's, he's really, <laughs> really. Sure. Cause I don't want to give away any spoilers, you know, this early in the game, because I've been guilty of uh, giving away spoilers before. So when I came in, you know, when came time to promote fang i'm like you know what i gotta got to try to keep my lips sure yeah. a little bit i don't want to be a squealer
0: <laughs> you gotta you gotta maintain some element of surprise right so
1: absolutely You yeah. know, it,
0: as i'm as i'm doing some research and i'm kind of looking at you know the stills and kind of the little promos that you've been throwing out on the website here and there just little bits and teasers to keep people interested i'm reminded of a few things it, so it kind of my brain is reminded of like, for instance, a cross between Jacob's Ladder and Willard and Spider-Man and all these kind of cool elements of movies that aren't really related but kind of have some of the same overlying themes. The fly, you know, uh which and then I don't know if you're familiar with like Kafka's uh, you know, meta- oh, yeah. metamorphosis, uh, of course.
1: Metamorphosis, yeah, that was Yeah, it's all those different things. That's a good way to describe it because i think that what i've always said is that you know obviously everybody has you know different influences different things that influence them there's no such thing as a purely original idea right for a movie or a story or anything else but i think when you have as many different influences as possible and then you kind of synthesize them together that that's how you kind of come up with something unique that and drawing from different life experiences you've had, too, because I think that a lot of filmmakers fall into the trap of being just influenced by other movies, but, you know, when you look at the world around you, there are so many crazy and interesting things going on that that seems like a goldmine of, you know, ideas, to me anyway.
0: That's a great way to look at it. A gold mine of ideas. The, the world is uh, uh, good ideas <laughs> and bad ideas. Right. So uh, it's, you know, when you think about influences, you know, it, it's, you know, I'm a musician, you know, and I talk to a lot of musicians and, I, and you know, the film industry and, and the music industry are not wholly different. They, they have kind of a lot of the same parallels. Um,
1: it's harder to make it as a musician especially now I feel for you
0: (laughs) man yeah let me tell you it's uh, I'm glad I'm not on the performing side of things anymore and I just uh, I I kind of get my jollies talking to people behind the scenes so I can still stay relevant but yeah it's it's tough you know when you're talking about influences and you hit the nail on the head there everything in some capacity is kind of derivative of something else you know and in the film industry and the music industry Things that are truly original, truly avant-garde, truly just way out there in, say, right field, tend to be the things that people shy away from in the sense of studios or investors. You know, it's taking a risk on a on a you know a new IP is a very risky endeavor. You know, it, it's there's a certain level of a comfort zone that people like to stay in and they might get pushed a little out of the comfort zone. But you know, when you start just ripping people's expectations out and just going way, I mean, you know, we'll call it David Lynch style, right? That guy does some crazy stuff. uh, But somehow he manages to stay kind of in there, right? He's just kind of still towing that gray area of, you know, not quite going over the edge, but so I'm looking at Fang and I'm thinking that this is got some themes that we all know and love, but really seems to take it to the next level. So tell us about the process of how you developed the story. You started writing this and what kind of changed along the way? How did it, how did it uh, adapt? Cause we all know, In the film business, there's a saying, writing is rewriting.
1: Well, I think that I didn't actually make too many major changes while I was writing. There was one plot element that I changed where originally, you know, Billy had two parents that I just decided to just limit it to his mother and have the line about his father dying when he was six because I think that, just kind of narrowing it down to those, you know, three main characters, you know, Billy, his mother, Gina, and the family's caregiver, Myra. I think that's exactly the right number of characters for that family unit. And there, and I couldn't see any reason to have him have two parents because it would seem like it would kind of diminish the impact of the drama. And then the other... Things I changed were fairly minor, like originally I had Billy working as a janitor at a meat packing plant, but when we realized we couldn't get any filming locations that would resemble a meat packing plant, I changed changed it so it would be a factory that makes meat processing equipment. Oh. So
0: cuz you could get access to a factory or a warehouse yeah. setting. That's very uh that's very Robert Rodriguez style by the way. I don't know if you're familiar with like uh when no, he was yeah. making El Mariachi, he was constantly like Uh, switching up his locations and the way that his people looked because he was like oh I went from having all my guys dressed in Armani suits to now it's just a bunch of dudes in jeans and cowboy boots (laughs) because I couldn't I couldn't gather together enough Armani suits for 12 guys you know Um, yeah
1: those are expensive I mean and when you have kind of limited time and limited uh, budget you know there's only so much you can do and so sometimes you have to make compromises but as long as the compromises don't compromise the true nature of the movie then I'm I'm willing to compromise because I think I mean if anything meat processing equipment plant is more unusual than just a meat packing plant so
0: Sure. You know, when you think meatpacking plant, you think like old mafia films and guys hanging up in the freezer. And so, you know, that's been yeah, done, yeah. right? That's that's kind of been out there a million times. So, you know, having something else that's kind of related, but its own thing probably hasn't been approached too many times in movies. So it does give you that kind of element of uniqueness.
1: Yeah, that's... Well, I think, yeah, you end up... I think, I think creativity comes from being kind of, you know, your limitations... And you have to work within your limitations to come up with something new. Because I think if anything, if you're just given like a blank canvas and unlimited money, that it's going to be harder to come up with something than if you have all these limitations that you have to work with.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's uh, thinking on your feet is the mark of a true professional. You can deal with whatever circumstance is thrown at you and maybe it kind of deviates from the original you know, uh, direction, but not necessarily deviates from the vision. So now you've come up with a situation and you're like, hell yeah, I just conquered that. What else you got for me? You know, bring it on.
1: That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, there are always, there are always so many different things that come up, you know, while you're, while you're filming is there are so many different scenes and days of filming. We had 23 days of filming and, and it went surprisingly smoothly overall. We never had to do any reshoots. We didn't go over budget. Wow. There, yeah, there. but there were a couple of days where things got pretty bad as far as things going wrong on set. Like, we were filming in uh, one house, which was going to be one of our major filming locations, but then the heating went out. <laughs> in the house and there was this kind of a general electrical failure and the tv in the living room actually caught on fire
0: holy shit
1: <laughs> yeah, there's like there's a smoke coming out of it and then we decided that we can't film in this house anymore so we had to find a different house and thankfully we were able to do that pretty quickly and that <laughs> And things went much more smoothly from there.
0: Yeah, who wired that house, by the way? That guy's fired. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it was kind of a dilapidated uh, house. that had been around the block quite a few times. Uh. And, it and it was not in a good neighborhood. But in the, it was in the winter. We filmed in Chicago in January and February. So it was it was cold. And we're also concerned that, you know, the snow might ruin continuity.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Some
1: of the outdoor scenes, but thankfully that turned out not to be a problem. I thank global warming for, <laughs> for not giving us any major snowstorms during the filming
0: a thing. Well, hey, there you go. If you're going to make lemonade out of lemons, right? Uh, you know, 23 cool, days yeah. of uh, good continuity is pretty epic. So That's true. <laughs> the, uh, uh, this. So this uh, this project is, or, or this movie is billed as a psychological horror. At least that's how it's referred to by the outside. Is that a good descriptor of kind of the direction you're taking with it?
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely Fang is a psychological horror film, I think in a sense I would almost refer to it as a kind of a slice of life drama for a good chunk of the movie, but then <laughs> the drama escalates into horror as the characters sanity and relationships with each other deteriorate and then it gets pushed into horror territory, so it goes from being a slice of life movie to a slice. <laughs> of
0: life so, of life. Boom, boom, psh right rim shot there so (laughs) the the elements of psychological horror i I think to me are are scarier than what you'd get out of say horror based off like a you know a nightmare on elm street kind of a horror something like that the psychological stuff the fear of the unknown what's going to happen you know you don't know what to expect to me is scarier than just a dude running around trying to stab you in the back of the head with a knife. Um so what's what's scary to you? Like what makes Fang a horror film uh that, that people that are viewing it can kind of understand your perception and direction that you wanted to take the horror to
1: well I think probably the most disturbing thing about Fang, well, the rat transformation can be pretty graphic at some points as you see the rat first start to emerge from under Billy's skin to be kind of a disturbing image. Although I think the most disturbing thing for me is just kind of seeing the psychology of the characters and how they kind of get themselves into this situation. Because I think there are a lot of, you know, most movie characters – that I've seen are, are somewhat healthier than most of the people I know who aren't movie characters. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, movie characters are very, you know, dynamic. They make all these decisions, you know, to survive. Then they, they fight these monsters. They conquer the monsters. But in, in Fang, the characters are very dysfunctional and they kind of torment each other. Because of their own sort of sick, delusional tendencies, and so i think I think probably the most disturbing thing about the movies is seeing the way the characters interact with each other and how they cause so many of their own problems, but they don't even realize it because they're so blind to the reality of you know what they should be doing, yeah. And I think that is ultimately the most disturbing thing about the movie, even more disturbing than the idea of a man turning into a rat. Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the lack of self-awareness, um, it seems to be kind of a big part of this movie, but I don't think it's as in your face as that. Kind of the perception I get is that there might be this, whether or not it's underlying or or maybe just like right below the surface, but is there kind of a kind of a take on on either like mental illness or or derangement or some kind of just lack of of uh, ability to see the world as it is
1: oh absolutely i mean i think i think most of the major characters in fang are mentally ill or deranged in some way and then i do have some more normal characters to balance them out but like the family caregiver, Myra, she makes a noble effort to reach Billy and Gina. but And that's another disturbing thing about the movie, too, is that we see how she's in over her head and that the kind of normalcy and the kind of the normal things that you would use to treat people like, you know, therapy or meditation Sure. or, you know or prescription drugs and how that's ultimately ineffective with these characters because they're too far gone. They're too deep in the muck (laughs) to really be reached easily.
0: Yeah. When you were writing this, did you take any kind of elements from your own life and find yourself putting them into characters? Like is Billy, for instance, any reflection on you yourself?
1: He is, definitely. Well, I would say that Billy is a good bit more severe than than me. I've never thought I was turning into a rat. Not yet, anyway.
0: <laughs> right. But
1: I would say that Billy is, is kind of a, a reflection of kind of my more, some of my darker and more, you know, unhinged tendencies. Like, I wrote Billy as an autistic character, and I have high-functioning Asperger, so I'm, like, very oh. high-functioning on the spectrum, yeah, and uh, Billy is somewhat lower-functioning. He is less aware of all the mistakes he makes socially and in in, in, in how he fails in his interactions with people, and he also has other problems, like being obsessive-compulsive, and I have OCD too. (laughs) And he's uh, depressed, and I've had problems with depression over the years too. And and Billy's mother, Gina, was based a lot on my dad. And, you know, Gina has Parkinson's, my dad has Parkinson's. And some of the dialogue uh, between them is like almost word for word from different arguments. Right. I've had with my dad. So yeah, definitely a lot of it was based on different experiences I've had.
0: Was that kind of an intentional thing, do you think, as you were writing it? Or did you write it and realize, wait a second, that just kind of popped out and now I'm going to run with this?
1: It was, uh, it was definitely intentional because I think some of the parallels are so obvious. So it would have to be pretty oblivious not to have attended it
0: sure do people that this. know you the people that know you closely anyway are they going to watch this and go god damn richard what the hell were you thinking
1: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah when i showed the uh script to my mom well, she was able to pick it out right yeah. away but this was about people who don't know my uh family quite as well might not necessarily see it right away, but yeah, a lot of it is drawn from my life.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. So the the perception of, you know, kind of as you're, you're writing something and you say you can put yourself into it and kind of make it fictional, kind of, I don't want to use the word embellish, but you kind of draw from those experiences, I think, really makes amazing characters that even if they're kind of, you know, off the deep end, something about them still makes them relatable. And the characters that you've written in this, they seem to be the kind of people that they're very close knit. They know each other very well. They're so closely bonded that then it makes it difficult for them to escape that reality.
1: Well, that is a a great way to put it because yeah, you're right. They are, you know, because it's mother and son relationship. That's the, core of the movie and obviously you know billy is known as mother gina for his whole life and they are very closely connected and they have a long history together and that's part of why they're so toxic because they can't escape each other they're both they're they're kind of bound together by their each of their disabilities and they can't really you know, get into the outside world because they have their own little sick inner worlds that dominate.
0: When you were writing this, did you know from the get-go that you were going to take a horror approach to this or did it kind of start out as a drama and evolve down the psychological rabbit hole?
1: Well, I, I did. Well, the whole concept of turning into a rat, that was kind of what spurred me to write it. So I always kind of intended for it to go in that direction. You didn't go to
0: film school, did you like officially? So you're self-taught, you know, more or less using whatever resources were available to you. So as you are kind of researching and learning kind of how this stuff works, as you were writing it, did you write what you felt was at your level to make this happen? Or did you have ideas and you were like, how the hell am I going to pull this off?
1: Well, I did write it intentionally so it could be filmed on a low budget. And there were a couple of things where I, I wondered how we were going to pull it off, but thankfully, you know, we figured out how to do it. And that's that's the great thing about working with really, you know, talented professional people is that they kind of round out whatever you don't know going into it. So I would always say that to any director is make sure you hire the best people because, it's gonna make your job a hell of a lot easier.
0: Yeah, when you were putting this all together, so you, you got you got the script written at least to the point where you're ready to go out and show it to people in the industry, if you will. How did you convince people to follow you, first time filmmaker, not going through film school, to join you on this project?
1: Well, the way I well, actually, that part was pretty. Pretty simple. I, I you know, I looked up different people in the Chicago area who could do it. I sent an email to my cinematographer, Jason Kranig, and I said, Hey, you know, I wrote this script. I wonder if you'd be interested in going on board in this project. So then Jason read it. He really liked it. And then he brought on board his friend, our producer, Robert Felker, and then the ball got rolling from there. So that part went by pretty quickly. Actually, I think everybody just really liked the scripts so that makes things a lot easier.
0: Yeah, so you didn't really have a, a necessarily a challenging time getting people on board and and getting people excited about it. That's, oh, that
1: was the easy part.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, well, I suppose that's you know that kind of makes sense because you know there are people that just gravitate towards others that are doing things, but uh, you know knowing your timeline and how quickly that you got this going quickly. I say in a relative term, because outside of the industry, it seems quick, uh, or it seems like it might take forever, but inside the (laughs) industry, you're like, wow, this is happening faster, you know, kind of than the average stuff. So you got actors on board, you got a cinematographer, you've got a producer. And then from there, uh, how long did it take before you actually started shooting? Well,
1: I think well, we got, the main production team on board in uh, September and then we started filming in January. We originally we were originally gonna start filming in uh, November then there were some delays that pushed us back to January and you know I was not looking forward to filming in the winter in Chicago for obvious reasons but we turned out to be very fortunate that we chose to film then because like a month after we finished filming the shutdown happened Oh,
0: right. COVID stuff.
1: <laughs> so if I had waited until it was warmer, like, like people wanted me to, then I would have been screwed.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. You know, I hadn't thought about that element of it, but you got the principal photography done. Like it was, it was about February, Just right? In yeah. So, so any, <laughs> uh, the processes that you're in right now, not to go down another rabbit hole, but I mean the, the COVID situation, as it stands right now, did not affect the majority of the production of your project.
1: Oh, it didn't. It didn't affect any of the production. The post production has been going on throughout these, you know, past months. But that's all, you know, in, in people's homes on computers. So that wasn't really affected by the shutdown. The main thing that has affected post production is me being overly ambitious. <laughs> with the time frame it takes to get things done, like I remember when we finished filming, I was like, "Hey, we can get the whole movie done by the end of June." And my producer was like, "No, we can't."
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to put this in perspective for people right. that 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 aren't familiar kind of with how filming works, and I, I do in my my we'll call it my real person job. Um, I do a lot of audio and video work and, and working on on film sets and things like that. Filming a simple line like, hey, come over here for a second, that takes you three seconds to say it. It might take you eight hours to get it set up, to set up the shot, to get all the stuff right, to make sure the <laughs> circumstances are right, and then to make sure that it just kind of works, right? And people don't really realize how long uh, it takes yeah. to do a simple take And then, of course, actors sometimes overthink that stuff. And you know, you you know, fifty takes later of you know three words um, is pretty crazy. And so, uh, and and just actually for my my techno geeky nerdy film stuff, did you? How many cameras did you use on this?
1: Well, we it was a a single camera shoot. We had an I think it was an RED cameras, either four K or six K, and we didn't, and we filmed it from different angles. You know, for each shot in each scene and we we didn't usually have to do a lot of different takes our actors and crew were very professional i think the most takes we did was like eight or nine takes for one scene that for some reason we were struggling with and normally it only took us like two or three hours to get it set up so we yeah we were we were pretty lucky and, and efficient definitely so you shot this digitally Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the advance in technology at this point is, is pretty remarkable. You know, what you can do with minimal equipment is, is awesome. Were you thinking about that as you were writing? Did you know you were going to take that route, you know, go the one camera route and do digital and stuff like that?
1: Well, I am not the uh, most technologically knowledgeable filmmaker. My instincts, in terms of the filming of Fang was find a great cinematographer and entrust him with figuring out the best camera and filming and lighting approach to use. And if it looks like the movie in my head, that's the most important thing to me. But I do definitely see advantages to using digital cameras now that, you know, they've improved in quality because, you know, filming on film... get very expensive yeah if you need a lot of uh film but like i think i i noticed like you know 10 years ago you could really tell when something was filmed on digital because it looked kind of dim generally compared to film but now i don't really see that problem as much i think the cameras have evolved a lot even just in the last few years
0: yeah yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I, I definitely am somebody who struggles with technology, but just as I learn something, I feel like now the world has moved on to something else. So I always <laughs> feel like I'm, I'm like that couple of steps behind, you know, where I really want to be. But I, I, I tend to embrace the prior gen of technology and that's drag good. it out, yeah. you know, for, for as long as humanly possible. But, uh, I, I think that's I awesome
1: to learn how the uh, big cameras work. I'm like, my lovely cinematographer that is your job
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's that theory, right? You surround yourself with people that are better than you. And, oh, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I believe that, you know, I was in management roles. That is
1: really important to do. I mean, you can't do every single job yourself. It's not a one man show.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and that, that's, that actually is a perfect segue into what I wanted to bring up next. So a lot of times those of us that have creative endeavors and things become our passion project, things that we put ourselves into so much have a hard time kind of letting go um, and not being, we'll call it the film dictator, right? Or the, or the music (laughs) dictator. So how was it for you once you finally got this project off the ground and you started working with actors and started working with cinematographers and you saw people saying and doing the things that came out of your head? How was that experience for you as you were first getting involved in that?
1: Well, I think the area where I I, I made the most mistakes was thinking I could do more things that I could actually do because I kind of underestimated how much work just being the writer and director is. But over time, you know, one thing I will say that is definitely a strength of mine is that I'm a very open-minded guy. I'm always willing, you know, to listen to people. And if somebody says something that makes sense, then I'll get on board with it. You know, regardless of where the idea comes from. I'm not I'm not somebody who likes to intimidate my cast and crew, you know, and that that is the advantage of being a relatively, you know, inexperienced director is that I'm not intimidating, you know, people are not afraid to tell me if I'm screwing something up. So and that's a good thing because, you know, people you know, you have, to, you have to be willing to listen to people if you want to grow as a filmmaker and get the movie made as as well as it can. You know, and I think that if you look at directors who have become really successful, like the example I always like to bring up is uh, George Lucas with the Star Wars prequels. Nobody wanted to tell him that it could have been a lot better because he's George Lucas. He's one of the most successful directors of all time with the most successful franchise of all time. so that could be in Achilles heel when you get to that point that people are afraid to give you feedback
0: yeah yeah it's true and and uh even if it's not the case even if you're not like a, a super you know film nazi that persona Sometimes it gets built up around you, this aura of mystique that people are just apprehensive. I don't, I don't want to offend him. I don't know what to say. You know, there's, there's very funny stories about directors like say, uh, Jan de Bont, who did like uh, twister for instance, about him being very difficult to work with. And he was very much like, you're going to do this because this is my movie and this is how I see it. And I'm <laughs> going to do a thousand takes until you get it exactly right. Clearly that's not the direction you took on this.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I I always look at it as you know we just we just have to do what works for the movie you know I get no real pleasure out of you know doing more takes than the necessary I want to get the show on the road too you know, I don't like standing outside when it's like 30 degrees out and saying <laughs> all right we're gonna need another 20 takes of this shot that's that's not my idea of of fun so once we get it once we get it done right and you know, every everything is as it should be. I don't feel the need to torture people yeah. beyond that point.
0: So you learn to be flexible, you learn to oh, kind of yeah. take some input and, uh, and and I think to your credit, it sounds like just the way that this went together, the planning you put into it and everything was was just really well from the start set up to be successful in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it went a lot better than it could have. You know, we had our problems, but I've heard some absolute horror stories about. (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, horror stories and not just uh, the movie itself. Yeah, right. (laughs) But, yeah, like I I read this long uh, article recently about this movie called Grizzly 2 that was being made in 1983. And it's just getting released this year
0: damn
1: <laughs> i was yeah, like did so i hear
0: that right 83 yeah to
1: 2020 yeah it's a 37 year uh delay so when i look at that i think all right well post-production took a couple months longer than i would have liked that's not so bad in comparison
0: that's yeah that that's awesome and of course especially on an independent. Ah, uh, film usually delays come from the filmmaker themselves, whether or not they're satisfied with kind of how things are going. Whereas in the studio world, a studio might get bought or sold, or CEOs might you know take uh, over, yeah. and you know, th- you know, there's a, there's massive amounts of personnel change, and producers come and go, and financing comes and goes, and you know, that you was can,
1: the case with uh, Grizzly too. It was like one disaster after another. It was an amazing uh, story to read about because it just gets stranger and stranger as you look at like how could they get screwed so (laughs) many times over
0: and over again so you told me about the awesome uh you know poltergeist level tv catching on fire thing uh besides (laughs) i wish
1: we'd gotten a shot of that and put it in the Movie, that would have been a
0: great shot. I was gonna ask you about that, yeah, that would have been a great psychological mind fuck to have in the movie right there for sure but uh besides that, what was the other craziest event that happened during the filming
1: well well that that was definitely the the craziest uh by far <laughs> I think the other craziest event well, just some of the uh well, there was actually one day where I got to be. In the movie, because we had, diff- we had, we had d- several different dream sequences where, you know, Billy gets talked to by the Rat King. Yeah. <laughs> so for one day, I got to play the Rat King, and that was a pretty wild experience for me because I got to put on the uh, rat makeup and then wear this rat mask and doctor's outfit. And then I went out there and then I got to wave my paws around. Nice. <laughs> that was a pretty crazy day. <laughs> so you actually got
0: to you got to take on a little bit of a of an acting credit, at least for that one little portion. For that
1: one scene, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Just add it to the resume, you know, writer, director, yeah. actor. You know, so <laughs> no, that's awesome, dude. So oh, and then you, yeah. what what about what do you think has been the most humbling experience of making a movie for you?
1: Well, I think just all of the things that which I was talking about some before about you know realizing that I can't do quite as many different jobs as I thought I could. That's a very humbling experience. From now on, I've made a pledge to you know stick with the writing, stick with the directing, and maybe have a few Hitchcock-like appearances ah. in my movies. <laughs> like when I got to be the Red King, but so I no, don't, I don't want to wear a hat at once. That was very, that was very humbling for yeah.
0: me. That's awesome. You know, I, I always like, you know, for instance, like uh, Scorsese will always kind of sneak into a scene here and there. You know, maybe he's a oh, waiter. Yeah,
1: like taxi driver Uh-oh. where he's the Gets into the back of the, the cab. cab. And he's like the kind of really racist, unhinged. Yeah. That was a very good scene. I
0: love Taxi Driver. In fact, I know you can't see it, but behind me, I have a Taxi Driver movie poster, uh, you know, hanging on my wall. But um, man, that that was
1: a big influence for me. Making Fang is Billy is a little bit like uh, Travis, like Travis Bickle.
0: Bickle, Yeah,
1: he's like this case. This loner, he's this outsider who's kind of going insane in this very gritty urban environment.
0: Taxi Driver is one of those movies that you watch it a thousand times, right? And then every time you watch it, you kind of pick up a little something that you didn't before. But I think my favorite scene in that movie, because the guy is just has zero social skills, right? He has no idea, right? <laughs> so, he, so he hooks up with uh, with uh, Sybil Shepard, and he wants to take her on a date. And what does he do? He takes her to a porn movie. <laughs> and he's and she's clearly uncomfortable, right? And he's like, "Oh, I don't see the problem." You know what's going? On? And she's like, "I want to get the hell out of here." And he's like, "What's wrong with you?" You know, just that idea that that was even something that was that people would like to do in that context <laughs> in that setting. Uh, it was really great. I, I think that's one of the things I like about that, that particular movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and also part of it too is like you know, New York in the seventies. I mean, Times Square was mostly porn theaters. It was very seedy, yeah. Back then, yeah. So I I could see why Travis would think that it was just like a normal thing still because that's what his environment was. And my dad lived in New York back then and he said yeah, that's just what it was like. You know, There's porn theaters and prostitutes everywhere and and that's just what the city was. So I, I think that because he didn't realize that her character was from a different social class, and we thought, "Yeah, this is just a normal thing to do," you know. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> I really like I really like that that element of of movies, and I I I get the impression that Fang kind of also gives you that that uh, impression that maybe the characters in this movie don't really. Have uh, a broader sense of understanding about what's going on in the outside world.
1: Oh, no, they don't. They are <laughs> they are pretty dysfunctional in that regard.
0: So, as a filmmaker, uh, what's your take on on like Hollywood or you know whatever the film industry doing all of these reboots? You know, kind of remaking old movies. It's a very controversial topic. Um, how do you feel about that?
1: Well, I think that the major studios are. In trouble now you know they're very risk averse and they're and you know when you don't really have fresh ideas coming in and out of your studio system that's a sign that you're not you're not you're, you're kind of going downhill basically and uh, i think that if you look at you know all the different streaming services you know they're the future the old the old guard is uh kind of on its last legs and I think all the remakes and reboots are a sign of that they're just kind of they're clinging to their intellectual property instead of of getting new intellectual property because they don't want to take those risks and adapt to you know the changing world
0: yeah I've heard many a rumor that there is somebody out there a big name person who is behind basically trying to redo the original <laughs> Star Wars trilogy and
1: uh they already, they already basically did remake Star Wars it was called The Force Awakens Yeah yeah
0: yeah it's it's basically <laughs> that's the cycle is all all of the prequels have kind of revisited the old material for sure that's a a joke i have with a lot of my friends that get really super hot about it when i bring it up and i'm like hey you know it is what it is whats yeah, I mean, thi- they've
1: already they've already, making, they already made like 5 different Star Wars movies in the last five years, why do they need to remake exactly. the original trilogy too?
0: And then taking a remake to the extreme, for instance, what did you think about, because I'm sure you saw it, uh, Gus Van Sant's Shot by Shot Psycho Redo?
1: Well, that's actually a movie that I haven't seen because I didn't feel the need to watch it because it's literally shot for shot. Shot for shot. At psycho, but Psycho, the original, is one of my all-time... Favorite movies, and I guess I give Gus Van Sant credit for at least thinking that he couldn't improve on it. But then, if he can't improve on it, then why the hell is he doing it in the first place? It's just kind of a baffling thing. I,
0: I guess that's the thing is I'm like, it. It kind of took me by surprise that it wasn't like just an homage. For instance, it was like I just want to prove to you that I can do what he did. That was kind of how I took it. Like, and it didn't. Yeah,
1: but then the problem with that is that Hitchcock already did it yeah. so you're not you're not Hitchcock if you could do shot for shot the same thing as Hitchcock because Hitchcock had to blaze the trail he was a pioneer yeah he wasn't copying anything else that was out there
0: it was a uh, I don't know it I don't would say it rubbed me the wrong way because it wasn't bad I mean it, there's nothing bad well, about I
1: mean, it I, would, I mean you can't really screw it up too badly yeah because it's still Psycho, it's still a masterpiece that you're drawing from. But yeah, it's one of those movies that I don't really have a strong desire to watch just because it's, you know, I really wouldn't be seeing anything different in the original Psycho. You know, I'm such a, it means so much to me that I just don't really feel the need to bother.
0: I always wondered what that, what that pitch sounded like at first, you know, he's at the studio, they're sitting down, they're all, you know, hanging out waiting for this epic. And he's like, all right, check this out. I've got this fucking brilliant idea. All right, we're going to take psycho and we're going to remake it. And the studio heads gun. Eh, it's been a while. All right, cool. I, yeah, I could do that. And then he's like, all right, no, but I mean, we're going to remake it. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're going to, we're going to take it and we're going to make it exactly the same. Exactly. <laughs> like, not change a thing other than the actors because, you know, they're all dead or whatever. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, we're going to do what he did exactly. And the guy's like, huh, so let me understand this. You're going to make a movie that's already been made exactly as it was already made. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be awesome. And how much money do you want?
1: (laughs) And then they gave it to him. So I was like. I know. Well, I think that, well, part of it, I guess, is, you know, reverence to the original Movie, you know, because you're you're really, I mean, psycho. The only thing I would change is that, you know, the ending where they explain Norman's uh, psychosis, yeah, that part is a little bit uh, dated, but everything other than that is basically perfect, so you can't really improve on it. So I guess that was probably Gus Van Sant's thinking. But then that should he should have taken that to the next step and realizing that, well, if I can't improve on it, then there's not really a reason to remake it
0: right. in the first place. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you wrapped in February. You're in post-production now. Where exactly are you in post-production? What final process is coming coming to us? Because we know, at least anticipation, we're looking at maybe November, right? That's kind of the goal as yeah, of right now. So yeah, how close plan, is it?
1: Yeah, my current plan is to have the online premiere in November. And we're definitely, we're very close to, you know, finishing post-production. We're in the final stage. Now we just have to do color grading and sound mixing. And that's basically it. And after that, you know, the movie will be all done and we'll have our online premiere. And after that, we're going to get a distribution deal for Fang, so it'll go out and get a much wider audience. My top choices would be to get it on Netflix or Amazon Prime,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, so it can reach the widest possible network of people who have it. But... If they're not interested in it, someone else, Will Fang, will definitely be finding a home somewhere out there with all the different studios and streaming services who are releasing content. And anyone who doesn't tune into our online premiere in November can expect to see the movie creeping around the... uh,
0: (laughs) I like that, creeping around.
1: uh, Thanks. They can expect to see it in 2021 if... They don't tune into our online premiere,
0: like in a physical theater release or anything like that.
1: Well, I would love to get it in theaters, but you know there aren't that many movies that get released in theaters now. It's not right
0: now, yeah. (laughs) So, as far as your premiere, uh, is it too soon to say where it's going to premiere?
1: Well, it's going to be online. I haven't gotten everything set up yet, or the exact date or time. And I'm probably going to try to do it like on the weekend. Like on Sunday, so everybody is off work, right?
0: And like on it, create a like its own website for the project and just view it right off the off the movie site, something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely I'm working on uh, getting a website. You know, I have so many different projects going on right now that's kind of been on the back burner for now. But I'm definitely I'm 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 gonna get it set up and. I'll have more details about when we're going to have the premiere and how people will be able to watch Fang once we get closer to that point.
0: Awesome. Well, it sounds like things are wrapping up. We're almost there. I'm really excited for this project. So before I let you get back to your day, I want to play a quick little game of Pick pick Your Poison. And this is where I ask you to make the impossible choice between two things. Are you ready for this? Okay, sure. All right, here we go. So, Friday the 13th or Halloween?
1: i got going to go with uh, Halloween on this one.
0: Okay, awesome. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: I'm uh, going to go with Texas Chainsaw.
0: Yeah, yes. good man. <laughs> What's the reason behind that one?
1: Well, I think that, well, I guess I think the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a somewhat better movie. The original Nightmare on Elm Street, I think it's just it's very, you know, gritty and uh, realistic. And it was a very influential to the genre of, you know, maniacs wielding <laughs> sharp plated <laughs> weapons.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And uh, Poltergeist or The Exorcist? I'm
1: uh, gonna go with The Exorcist.
0: Oh wow, cool! Yeah, two psychological movies for sure. There with the uh, with just crazy stuff going on. Uh, that's right. Child's Play or Annabelle?
1: Hmm, that's a tough one. I guess the I guess Chucky has a little bit more of a sense of humor, so I'm gonna go with Child's Play.
0: <laughs> All right, The Thing or The Ring.
1: Hmm, and then you got him to rhyme uh, this time.
0: Yeah, that was uh, that was unintentional. And I was pretty proud of myself when it happened.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I guess I'll have to go with the thing.
0: Yeah, going to stick with the classics on that one. So, all right, uh, here we go. Last one, a uh, little, little uh, movie nerd production stuff here. And I don't even know if this is stuff that you use, but
1: okay. movie
0: magic screenwriter. Or Final Draft?
1: I don't use either of those. I use Keltex. Uh, so oh, Keltex. This is a, a neutral category for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go in the open source. Look at you. So, uh, well, hey, dude, this has been absolutely epic. I- I've had a blast talking with you. Yeah,
1: uh, but, yeah this has been a great uh, interview. Thank you so much for having me on. I think we covered a lot of great ground here, and... Uh, I hope everybody who watches Fang has a fantastic time.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, tell everybody out there in, see, Radio Land, how do they stalk you on social media and keep track of the progress so that when Fang is finally released, they'll know kind of all the details and where they can go?
1: Well, the uh, best place to find out more about Fang as of now is our uh, Facebook page fang colon the movie and that is a great resource we have a lot of different pictures from the production different people writing about the movie so you can hear my take on it the actors take on it and see some of our amazing shots of you know filming and when when i look back at everything we've amassed you know it it really it really does look pretty incredible
0: yeah yeah so uh so go on the facebook page uh fang colon the movie like the page get all the cool updates look at all those badass production stills i promise you it'll make you twice as excited uh it's just it's really really cool they've done a fantastic job of keeping people enticed with just little tidbits of awesomeness here and there so uh richard thank you again for joining me on misery point radio it's been awesome to talk with you and i can't wait till the release and you can count on my support when it launches to help you spread the good word my friend
1: Uh, You're very welcome, Mike, and thank you for being so dedicated to the Fang cause, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.
0: All right. Thank you, brother. You too. Hell yeah. How could I not have a great rest of my day after such a kick-ass conversation? Thanks again to Richard Bergen for taking the time out of his insanely busy schedule to come hang out on Misery Point Radio, for sharing his journey to get this film made with us, and for sharing some very personal details about his life that helped shape him into who he is and helped develop the direction of the movie. I am genuinely excited for the release of Fang, I'm not just blowing smoke, and I definitely plan on being there to support the release and subsequent promotion. I hope you will be too. Make sure you follow the Fang Movie Facebook page so you can stay up to date with all the important details and get some cool preview glimpses of what's to come. And fear not, I didn't forget you, our amazing listeners out there in the wasteland of internet radio. I can't even really begin to thank you enough. I am constantly overwhelmed and blown away by the epic levels of support you have shown to me personally and to the show. It really does blow my mind that we have spread the Misery Point Radio gospel so far and obtained listeners in damn near every country in the world. Seriously, we're almost there. We're so close. So let's continue our worldwide domination of the airwaves Follow the show on all the social media sites. Subscribe on your favorite streaming platform, which, by the way, now includes Amazon Music and Pandora. How fucking cool is that? And in case you didn't know, I'm also a part of the Spoilerverse. So head on over to spoilerverse.com forward slash Radio to check out all the episodes and to immerse yourselves in ungodly amounts of pop culture awesomeness. So, please... Keep supporting the cause, stay safe, stay sane, stay metal, and I'll see you next time on Misery Point Radio.